0: for a long time it's been said there's a book inside every one of us just waiting to come out and you know i think that's true of podcasts too you're listening to a podcast right now so you know the power of the medium but where to get started podcast hosting companies microphones single track multi-track and what about a mixer do you even need one I created a four-hour tutorial called Unleash Your Inner Podcast that helps you understand what you need to do to get a podcast up and running and the various means you have of creating one. It's easier than you think when someone explains it clearly. I've been podcasting since 2004, and I'm happy to share what I've learned all from a blindness perspective. Unleash Your Inner Podcast is available for purchase and instant download at mosen.org slash podcasting. Unleash your inner podcast today. Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosin. Welcome to episode 74 of the podcast in which I will be talking with Nicole Ellis who is a filmmaker. She makes documentaries, she does all sorts of interesting journalism work And a while ago, she decided to investigate the topic of blind people seeking love and lust in the digital age, highlighting the stories of three blind people who happen to live in New York. The documentary is called Blind Date, and we'll be talking with her about that soon. You can find out more at blinddatedocumentary.com. I hope at some point soon we might be able to actually watch the movie online somewhere in case it's not being screened where you are. It's a very realistic portrayal of blindness, in my view, which is in itself most refreshing. So we'll talk with Nicole in a little bit about herself and the documentary. And after that, I believe that as we strive for equality of opportunity and the rights of citizenship in society as blind people, rights of citizenship come with responsibilities. And one of those responsibilities, as a citizen not only of your nation, but of the world, is to speak out and speak up When you see something truly evil going down. And I intend to talk about that at the end of the podcast. There's a new way to hear the Blindside podcast. And as I promised you, when we changed providers a couple of weeks ago, uh, we are going to roll out the Blindside to new and exciting places. And I'm really delighted to report that Spotify has taken us on. Thank you, Spotify. You probably heard of Spotify, right? I think they've got about 45 million tracks now. ...that you can listen to. It's quite staggering, really, for the price of you know what we used to pay for a CD. You now have this massive collection of music to access. But they're broadening out and they're getting into podcasts too. And they are a bit selective about who they will take on. So we're absolutely thrilled that the Blindside podcast is now available in Spotify... And all you need to do, you can search for my name or you can search for the Blindside podcast and you will find it there. You can then follow the podcast in Spotify. And whenever a new episode is published, you'll be able to get us from there as well. Of course, we're also now publishing to my LinkedIn profile. We're publishing to YouTube as well. We go to Facebook with the Mosin Consulting Facebook account. And gosh, we're going all over the place and we are not done yet. We have one really exciting thing in the works at the moment, and as soon as that's ready to go, we'll be demonstrating it and telling you all about it here on The Blind Side. So we continue to expand and expand in all the directions we can whiz, I tell you. Feel the need to sound off? Share your thoughts about this week's show by email. Send an audio file or write it down and email Side at mosen.org. Let's go to Canada for this one, and here's Dan Eichmar. He says, Hi, Jonathan, I'm in Canada here, and I couldn't agree with you more that we should get the same things that they've got in the US. We've never had the news app here in Canada either, and it's existed in the US for the last two years. We have the same devices running the same OS as they do in the States, UK and Australia, where the news app is available. So it makes no sense to me as to why the news app hasn't been available here. It's interesting that Siri isn't available on Apple TV for you over there in New Zealand. Very interesting. I agree with you that you should have the same availability of apps and such here. Good to hear from you, Dan. Thank you for writing in. My understanding is that where the news app is concerned, Apple does partner with local providers of content for localized news services in the markets where news is available. So I suppose in the case of Canada they might want to partner with the Canadian press, maybe CBC and some other big uh, news providers in Canada. But increasingly as markets become more global, it does seem like a bit of a weak excuse and uh, it, it it is odd that a country the size of Canada doesn't have the Apple News app as for Siri in New Zealand on Apple TV. The excuse we got was that Apple has to take more care with Siri on Apple TV to do with how actors' names are pronounced. Yep, that's what they said. And there might be some regional variation to do with that. But, you know, Siri's been on the Apple TV for, what, a couple of years now, and we still don't have it officially in New Zealand. Of course, there are workarounds, and my book, Imagine There's No Countries, goes into some of those workarounds. You can get a U.S. account easily enough in the uh, Apple App Store, and then if you sign in with that, you are able to use Siri. You could do it with an Australian or UK account as well. So yes, it is very frustrating. While we're talking about being in touch with the podcast, don't forget that we do have this email list now, this discussion group, and this is a way for listeners of the podcast to talk about the most recent episode, maybe to suggest things I'd like to have covered in future episodes, and generally just shoot the breeze and chew the fat with other listeners if you would like to join that group then the way to do it is to send a blank email to the blind side plus subscribe at groups.io that's the blind side and then the plus symbol subscribe at groups.io it's time to hear from this week's featured guest on the blind side Recently, it was Valentine's Day. It's a very happy time for some people, flowers and cuddly toys and dinners. For others, it can be a really difficult, challenging time. It's a little bit like Christmas in that sense, a very joyous occasion for some, not so joyous for others. And for blind people... Looking for love can be a challenge in a whole bunch of ways, but perhaps even more so in some respects with the kind of technological age in which we live. And there sometimes might be accessibility as well as romantic challenges all piled on top of each other. I'm going to talk about a documentary that I stumbled upon when doing some research for the podcast. But first of all, I want to talk more about its maker, who is Nicole Ellis, and she joins me now. Nicole, it's really great to talk with you. Thanks for coming on The Blind Side.
1: Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me.
0: You have a really interesting backstory because you've traveled the world. You've picked some interesting topics to do some documentaries on. Tell me a little bit about you.
1: Yeah, I am originally from Houston, Texas, and um, and sort of got my start uh, in terms of curiosity about blindness and disability while in South Africa studying abroad. In college, and um, and my sort of mentor there was quadriple- was excuse me was quadriplegic, and I was so sort of inspired by his journey that I basically decided to to explore how disability is perceived and sort of approached there. And when I sort of flash forward a few years in journalism school, it just became a sort of natural. A natural desire to to revisit. Um, and that sort of informed how I've approached filmmaking and life generally um, from a sort of anthropological perspective of, of just genuine curiosity, excuse me, curiosity about different cultures, different ways of life, and sort of finding those, those kernels of, of, of shared experiences between all of us.
0: Is that how it panned out then that you decided you wanted to be a journalist? You know, I want to be a journalist when I grow up and then it kind of metamorphosized into filmmaking. Was that the, the way it panned out?
1: Yeah, I, I always knew that I wanted to be in video and I knew I wanted to sort of be a reporter to a degree. Um, as an anthropologist, you know, I, I knew how to write long, you know, dense, descriptive sort of elements of what life is like for a different culture or in a different community, but I realized I really didn't know how to turn that into a story or a narrative, you know, sort of something that that takes people on that journey and and they enjoy it along the way. Um, And, and I knew I wanted to do that with film as well and sort of visually create experiences that, that people can learn from and be a part of.
0: These days, journalists have to be reasonably technologically literate, don't they? Because often they are their own camera people. They're going out there with smartphones. They're expected to get a bit of audio and a bit of video and maybe write some copy because so many media organizations are multimedia outlets serving all kinds of markets.
1: Yeah, I mean, we we consume information a multitude of ways and being able to provide it in as many mediums as possible is definitely a strength.
0: So, you traveled the world for i think a couple of years, and you blogged your activity um that's a pretty brave thing to do to just kind of pack up and go around the world and see what happens
1: yeah it was it was a lifelong dream for sure and when I was a little girl i um I just binge watched National Geographic wild all the time, so I knew I had sort of had this backpacker spirit in me, and I knew I wanted to um, to, to sort of, to really act on that motivation. And so I moved, I moved in with my grandmother right after graduating college and saved every possible nickel dime penny I had and put it towards a trip around the world. So, so yeah, I, I kind of think it's, it's in that same vein of wanting to learn about other people and sort of looking at things from this immersive anthropological sort of lens, um, that sort of always, has always played a part in in my life. I've always just kind of wanted to, to go on an adventure and to learn um, and to help other people sort of figure out how to do it themselves.
0: The United States is such a strong culture. It's difficult to go anywhere in the world where The U.S. doesn't have some sort of influence, whether it be on music or what people see on the TV or what they eat. It's it's sort of everywhere. How did you feel about being an American and the way that you were perceived? Because often when you do travel to some countries, at least, it's almost like you're an ambassador for your whole nation, whether you agree with what it's doing or not.
1: Yeah, um, I that's an interesting question. Um and I don't know if I have an answer off the top of my head. Um I think for me I I sort of I'm always looking for pieces of 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 how you create a family and what family looks like everywhere you're going. So, I don't know if if I was necessarily perceived as, you know, only american or or as american as a brand or as a label i think for me because i've been so focused on on adapting and adjusting and understanding i would identify maybe more as someone who's like who who is approached or appreciated as a sister or a cousin or someone else that sort of that is there sort of deferentially understanding that the country that i'm in and the culture of that place comes first If that makes sense. So it would be hard for me to say what it's like as an American or as as a surrogate for a representative of America or a proxy for all things American, because um, I think my motivations were very much so ingrained in how I approached relationships and social life everywhere I went.
0: Mm, That's interesting. My wife is American. And sometimes we all get in a taxi or we'll go to a restaurant and just they'll hear her accent. And obviously it's very distinctive compared to the New Zealand accent. And suddenly she will get the third degree about, you know, I hope you I hope you didn't vote for Trump. You know, it's like somehow she's <laughs> she's she's got to be responsible for this in some way. It's a very interesting phenomenon to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's very complicated as an international traveler now. My trip was so many years ago, um, that there was not, there weren't as many eyeballs on, on American politics, um, the way there is now.
0: Right. Right. Where did you travel to when you were doing all your, your, your world travels?
1: Yeah, I went, um, I started in South America, Colombia, Ecuador, Peru, then from there, South Africa, uh, Zambia, Tanzania, Rwanda, Uganda, then on to India, um, thailand lao singapore um i'm trying to think of it, malaysia uh australia your hometown new zealand yeah. and um, and sort of made my way again through through the us um portugal and then back to the us
0: <laughs> and did it change you
1: absolutely um i think that it's having so much exposure informs my ability to navigate my professional life. I mean, I, I worked before that trip, and I obviously went back to school, and I'm working now after it. But I think that it does, um, it it does play a big part in in my sort of my job as a professional listener. Um, I think my approach and understanding and an interpretation of of everything that I hear and learn um, comes through a lens or an understanding that that we all. Like our, our lived experiences inform our perspectives.
0: You touched on the story a little bit of how blind dates came to be. When I heard about this, I was really nervous because so many blind people have been portrayed by the media either as, my goodness, aren't you Amazing, aren't you inspiring? I think the term inspiration porn has become kind of fashionable of late. I'm not sure if it's a term I feel particularly comfortable with, but i I hear it used a lot and then the uh the the other one is that gosh what a what a terrible thing it must be to be blind. I was struck by how your approach to this was very matter of fact. I didn't come away from the documentary feeling like you had any particular. Agenda or hypothesis that you were trying to pursue with this?
1: yeah, I think that that was a goal. Um, and i'm I'm so happy to hear that that came through that that came through. Um, I think because I had so much exposure to understanding, you know how little difference there is between someone who's blind and someone who isn't, or just have friends. Really, it's like it's it kind of plays into that exposure piece again, where I'm you know I'm I'm not I'm not going to treat a friend or anyone differently if they have a disability because I know I know that they are capable of just as much if not more than I am, and that was a huge part of sort of the intention that Maya and I both had going into this film was not wanting to make a pity party film right like no i didn't want anyone to walk into this film thinking you know thinking that they would that that they had the capacity to project their own opinions onto it um or that they'd be right um i think that i think the film and sort of my relationship and maybe defiance of preconceived notions is um is a huge part of is a huge part of sort of what informed how we made it
0: For those who haven't come across it, can you give us a kind of an elevated pitch? Tell me about what happens in it.
1: Yeah. um, So the film follows three blind New Yorkers on their sort of quests for love and their journey through their love lives, whether it's through online dating or understanding their own sexuality or just looking for love generally. Um, So we follow Nefertiti, Anthony and Gus, who both have, who all three have very unique, different sort of lives and lived experiences. Nefertiti, who in the film just sort of came out of a relationship and is eager to sort of get her feet wet and learn and not learn rather um, and just start dating again, um, faces her own sort of unique set of challenges with her health and with her sort of trying to balance school and work and, and conferences. And really you get a window into what it's like navigating the world being blind and the prejudices that you face, not necessarily that, that define you, but that sort of other people project onto you. Um, Anthony, who's so fun. We take, you know, we go to Vegas with him and have fun and drink and play. And you really kind of you live the, you know, you live through this young man's life that's so fun and adventurous, but you also sort of realize that he's facing those same challenges. And in a way, be, becoming blind, um, you know, helped him see his life path more clearly. And then Gus, who's also balancing his sexuality and being gay and reconciling that with being blind, and and sort of the timeline of coming out versus going blind, and how he how he navigates that, but also, you know, handles a a job and school and getting a master's degree. So you kind of see this, you see these really strong personalities. All three of them have very strong, very different personalities. They're all incredibly smart, incredibly talented and, and kind of doing, living their best lives, to be honest, like achieving, accomplishing and they're impressive people, period.
0: Yes. It's very effective because the blindness is obviously there, and no one's trying to hide from it. But it's it, it's portrayed, I think, as one particular facet of them. It's it's not them in to, in totality, and I imagine that must have been quite a difficult balance to strike.
1: Maybe just intentional, right? Like it's easy after spending. And what's great about docs is that you do spend so much time with the people that you're filming that it's easy to see how their how their personalities are kind of come through. And I think really meeting so many people and being intentional about, about having big personalities so that that's amplified. And so you see this whole picture of a person and not necessarily this through this one lens. Um, it, you know, the people that we filmed made it easy to be honest because they were all so great.
0: How did you pick those three?
1: So I actually started running with Achilles, um, in New York city. Um, and I would sort of meet with them every, I think it was Tuesdays and Sundays. Um, and I started doing, so my first print piece in journalism school was about how another blind New Yorker navigates sort of his, his daily life of being autonomous in New York city transit. And through him, um, I started running with Achilles and just met more people and dating just became a natural piece of conversation as you become closer to people. Um, and it, it almost, it just, it kind of happened naturally that that was the subject matter. And then through Achilles and through, um, through meetup actually. So, so through Achilles, I met Nefertiti and Anthony, and then I was on meetup.com literally searching blindness and dating and Gus was running an event about it. And so we met him while he was moderating a how-to guide that was, you know, kind of, it was, it was, it was miserable to a degree because there was only so far you could get on, on one of the websites. And, um, and that's how we met him sort of in his, in his own world, trying to help other people understand how to navigate online dating sites.
0: Yeah. One of the things that struck me about um, his story was the difficulty sometimes identifying somebody who is also gay and, and as somebody who has been in heterosexual relationships, it's not something I've ever really given any thought to at all that, you know, that, that there must be a lot of visual signals in that regard that a blind person just misses out on.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it was, it was a, a, a sort of a huge moment for all of us, for Maya and myself sort of filming this and hearing us describe these experiences. Cause it's not something that we, that it's something we probably take for granted in terms of appreciating how mannerisms and visual cues inform our dating lives. Whether
0: you're gay or not, I mean, for, for anybody who is seeking a relationship, how important do you think that is? And I ask the question because as somebody who's been totally blind from birth, I have never personally considered it particularly a barrier. But, but you don't know what you don't know, right? I mean, you don't know how much you might be missing from the, the lack of visual signals.
1: Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't really know. I think that that Nepertini kind of she touches on it a bit when she talks about um, you know sort of playing with tactile or tactility or touch in terms of intimacy or or meeting someone and sort of like and how that informs her spatial awareness. Um, but I don't really know, to be honest. Um, I, I I couldn't even. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because I also think that um, in in a much more enlightened era that we are now, where we have things like the Me Too movement and we, 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 we realise that there ought to be a zero tolerance policy on any kind of inappropriate conduct, you've got to be a bit careful there as well because if you are misreading the signal, perhaps through a lack of visual data… You may inadvertently behave inappropriately in some situations.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely something to consider and is, you know, it's a, it's a concern.
0: The, the documentary has received some screenings. Um, what kind of feedback have you received on it? And have you received a lot of feedback from, um, well, blind and sighted alike, I guess, and, and how that feedback might differ?
1: Yeah, um, I think that so actually most of the blind audiences that have seen the film, you know, were sort of new about it as it was unfolding. So it's screened in New York and a lot of a lot of sort of people that played a part in helping us find Nefertiti or Gus or Anthony were there. So I think they really enjoyed it and it didn't necessarily have a whole lot of feedback. I think sort of from sighted viewers, um, it, it changed their perspectives. I mean, I think it's a it's a pretty fun, cool way of looking at dating and really thinking about your own dating life and, you know, would you date someone blind, but also how could you create that experience? And I think that humanizing our characters changes that narrative, right?
0: There was a theme running through. I I don't remember whether it was all three, but at least with two of your three subjects, they both independently of one another made comments about... How so many people don't perceive blind people as being sexual beings. That really interested me.
1: Yeah, I think Nefertiti said that. Um, I think that it is, it's definitely hard because it's not something a lot of people articulate. And when you bring it to light, um, you know, who wants to own their assumptions? Um, And so it's, it's really, it's incredible. And I'm so proud of her for, for speaking up and for, for sort of letting that part of, you know, sort of, I guess, you know, shining a light on that part of how people think and function in the world, but also kind of letting it be an ongoing, an ongoing part of the story as you get to know and learn to love these characters.
0: I was interested in how you were going to resolve it. You know, whether there was going to be some sort of happy ending, how it was going to end, and it it wasn't really clear. cut right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I think the the biggest challenge for any documentary filmmaker is when to stop shooting. Right? Is our goal in the end to have, you know, obviously that would be incredible, and ultimately, you know, Nefertiti, she does have, you know, a start the beginnings of what could be a happy ending. Um, And for many of them, I think it's, I think it sheds, it's sort of a bigger conversation, right? I think for Anthony, we see that his his whole life actually isn't defined by his, his dating life. And it's one challenge um, and the sort of one challenge in that part of his life. It's, you know, they're basically, I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, we don't get that happy ending, but you also realize that, in other in other elements of their lives, A, that they're not defined by their dating lives, and B that they're actually all doing really well. Like they're doing incredibly well as people, and that's a value too.
0: Yeah, it might be easy for somebody who's safely on the shelf and all that sort of thing to say this. But I, I guess what I was left with at the end, you know, and I kind of the, the 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 documentary finished and I just sat there thinking for a while. And I thought, yeah, sometimes as a society we're we're quick to think that we need somebody else to complete us in some way or to validate us. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's not necessarily the case that, you know, we're, we're in, in many cases, we're okay as we are, um, whether, whether we have a, a partner in our lives or not.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think sort of as a single millennial myself, I think the funniest, you know, the best, one of the pieces of, of of kernels of wisdom that I hear is like, you know, you have to be your best self before you're, you know, you have to date yourself before you date anyone else. And I think that we kind of, we see that in each of them, that they're all very much so whole, strong, um, self-aware people. And I think that, that, you know, a happy ending isn't necessarily defined by walking into the fog hands in hand in hand necessarily. Um, and and yeah, I think exactly, exactly what you're saying.
0: <laughs> One of the topics I wondered whether you had considered or whether you have a view on, there's a, a lot of debate in the blind community about whether relationships where there are two blind people in them work out better over time because of the perceived better equality or whether sometimes when you get a blind sighted relationship, and obviously there are a lot more sighted people in the world than blind people, sometimes there can be pressures or tensions put on those relationships because the sighted person can, can use a motor vehicle and they can just do some things easier. And if you get to the point where children are involved, maybe they become the taxi service more than the, the blind parent, all those sorts of issues of, of what kind of relationship is likely to be more sustainable.
1: Yeah. So I I can't personally speak from experience here, but I, I have felt like, you know, what made a part of what made this film so, so great was really geography, right? Like New York city is a great place for a blind person to be autonomous and to not be dependent on, on anyone or anything to get around and to work. And I think that that probably plays a big role in, in sort of In how dating or how sort of codependency works, depending on where you are, right? Like in New York City, no one needs a chauffeur um, or needs someone to drive. No one needs to be able to drive. But in a Houston or a Denver, that's different, and that impacts blind communities differently. Um, So I guess that's half of my answer. Is is I'm not sure, but I'm sure sort of geography and how accessible the city is plays a role in that. And then the second part is. I don't know if a blind person dating a blind person versus, person versus a blind person dating a sighted person has makes a difference, but I do think that exposure helps, right? Like understanding or being around a lot of blind people or a lot of people with any type of disability de- demystifies that and makes it less of a perception of burden or a perception of um, inability, rather just different you know, just different means of achieving the same things.
0: The documentary was completed, what, is it a, a couple of years ago now?
1: Yeah, 2015.
0: Yeah, and it's still doing the rounds, and uh, I think the reason I came across it was because it, it recently had another screening. Do you keep up with the three people in the documentary now and find out, you know, how they've got on in the intervening years?
1: We stay in touch Um not as much as I would like. So I know they're all doing well, Um, whether or not they're dating these days, I'm not entirely sure. Um, But I chatted with Anthony the other day and he's doing great. And, and I'd like, yeah, I do stay in touch with (laughs) them.
0: That's really cool. Is there a way that people can watch this documentary? Now we may have piqued their interest. Do do you have currently a means of people being able to watch it online or, or might there be a way for people to do that at some point in the future?
1: So we're sort of still making the festival rounds, but we are looking for distribution for after that. And the best place to find out where the film will be next is at BlindDateDocumentary.com.
0: How cool is that? Now, am I right that you might be working on an audio described version of this as well so that if people do go and see it, um, they'll be able to get the full audio description?
1: Yes, we're screening in Houston on uh, this coming Tuesday at four o'clock. And that version will be audio described. And once we sort of are, de- are once we launch at Abilities, the Houston premiere, um, we will have an audio described version accessible for the blind.
0: That's really good. And another option, I don't know much about how films get to where they eventually go. But iTunes and and all the Apple ecosystem that's pretty widely used by blind people. And they do have an audio description soundtrack Option, so there might be a way of deriving some revenue from um, you know, putting it up for sale on, or, or even rental on iTunes.
1: Absolutely, thank you so much for that for that piece of advice.
0: There you go. <laughs> what, what are you doing now?
1: I, I I currently am a filmmaker and reporter at the Washington Post.
0: In what field? You doing kind of human interest work, or what's what's the yeah, beat? I
1: cover, I cover inspired life and social issues.
0: Interesting stuff. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. And the movie is called Blind Date. So, that website, can you give us the website one more time?
1: BlindDateDocumentary.com.
0: Fantastic. And it's worth catching if people can. And uh, certainly, if I hear of it being available uh, online anywhere in the future, we'll certainly let listeners know. But I appreciate you coming on the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. And happy belated Valentine's Day.
0: (laughs) And to you. (laughs) Our place, our issues. The Blind Side with Jonathan Moser. Now we've reached the last section of this episode. Although I wanted to position it first because of its importance, I'm ensuring that this is the last item in the episode so that if you don't want to hear what I have to say on this subject, you can skip to the next podcast on your list, knowing that you won't have missed anything else on The Blind Side. All that's left once I've concluded my remarks on this topic is the familiar podcast outro. I want to talk about a serious humanitarian issue that has become so serious that in my view, it transcends national boundaries. I want to talk about guns in the United States of America, and I want to talk about the obligation, the moral obligation that each of us listening to this podcast has, no matter where in the world we live, to do something tangible about the situation. And I know that in raising this subject on a podcast like this, I'm going to incur the ire of some of my American listeners who will want to know why this issue is any of my damn business. What right does a foreigner have to comment on domestic matters that don't concern them? And how, these people are going to ask, does this fit into a podcast on issues from a blindness perspective? They're fair questions, and I will address them. When the United States intervenes in the domestic affairs of other nations, there's never unanimity. We can't be the world's policemen, is the common catch cry against any kind of intervention. And yet the tide of public opinion often turns significantly in favor of intervention when innocent children are affected, whether it be the slaughtering of kids gassed in Syria or kids starving in Rwanda. So you see, what this teaches us is that on occasion, Issues come along that are so clearly flying in the face of human decency that they touch our very core. They offend our very emotional core as human beings. When that happens, we realize that national boundaries are artificial human constructs. Why does this topic belong on a podcast with a blindness emphasis? Because this podcast acknowledges that as full participants in society, every issue affects us. That full participation includes blind people going to their local school. Blind people are parents too. Blind parents kiss their children goodbye in the morning, or maybe they actually don't. If you've been a parent in a busy household, you know how frenetic, how automated the morning ritual can get. Kids can be hard to wake in the morning, hard to get motivated. They're often late for school. There might be multiple kids to organize, multiple lunches to make and sort out. Kids of different ages that need to be dispatched to different schools. Hopefully there is time for a hug and a quick peck on the cheek and maybe an I love you. But sometimes, especially when there are grumpy hormonal teenagers in the mix, that doesn't necessarily happen. And when it doesn't happen, you don't think that you'll never see your kid again because they're going to be massacred at school that day. In this age of unprecedented access to information, we as blind people can get breaking news notifications like everybody else. And we receive so many notifications about somebody opening fire with a mass assault weapon in the United States that many of us have become desensitized. Just like in the old biblical parable of the Good Samaritan, the pious learned people in authority, tut, tut, they shrug their shoulders and say something really must be done about this, and then everybody moves on. We have become so overwhelmed with breaking news these days that we have had to dull our empathy circuits just to survive. It's the only way we can deal with so much horrible information without being overwhelmed. But what if that push notification was about your son or your daughter, their whole life ahead of them, killed in their school by a weapon obtained legally, designed for no other purpose than to kill the maximum number of people in the shortest possible time? When news came through in 2012 about Sandy Hook, I sobbed my heart out, and I'm not ashamed to admit that. Twenty. Kids, 20 kids, aged between six and seven, plus brave adults who tried to save them, shot that day. 20 tiny little children. After Sandy Hook, I felt sure there would be drastic change. What sort of country with a modicum of civilization would countenance the killing of 20 little children without a massive response to tackle the problem. One thing that did happen because of Sandy Hook was the creation of the Gun Violence Archive. They're a not for profit organization and they began tracking school shootings in 2014. They define school shootings as an episode on the property of an elementary school, secondary school, or college campus. Another defining characteristic is timing. Shootings must occur during school hours or during extracurricular activities. Only episodes in which people were injured or killed by gunfire are included in their statistics. Injuries like a leg broken while fleeing the scene are not archived. So it is a conservative definition. And even then, they estimate that since Sandy Hook, more than 400 people have been shot in over 200 school shootings. Another way to illustrate the calamitous nature of this problem is that the US has more school shootings than 36 other countries combined. Of course, anyone who is a parent knows that profound instinctual desire to keep our kids safe. But let's not forget that many adults, still someone's son or daughter, but also often someone's spouse or parent, they've lost lives in mass shootings as well in the United States. They're not school related. I had a family member, in fact, a cousin who just managed to escape the mass shooting at that country music festival in Vegas in October last year. They were on the scene. They were there. That was very close to home. Since Sandy Hook, again, according to the Gun Violence Archive, there have been at least 1,126 mass shootings in the United States, with at least 1,252 people killed and 4,453 people wounded. Now, depending on the argument that you use, there is a case to be made that mass shootings in the US may not be increasing by that much, if at all. But even if that is the case, and it is debatable, there's absolutely no doubt that the United States has more gun violence than developed countries it likes to compare itself with. There's some United Nations data that shows that the US had 29.7 firearm homicides per 1 million people in 2012. You compare that with Switzerland, who had 7.7, Canada, who had 5.1, and Germany at 1.9. The U.S. makes up about 4.4% of the global population, but it possesses 42% of the world's civilian-owned guns. And the empirical research shows that places with more guns have more homicides. A third of the world's gun violence occurs in the United States. A third, even though it's only 4.4% of the world's population. Now, having lived and worked in the United States and studied it extensively. I'm well aware that there are deeply rooted cultural values here that are incomprehensible to most people outside of the country. But I believe that it is our duty as human beings, both inside and outside the United States, to stand up and say, enough is enough. This kid, who perpetrated this latest massacre at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, couldn't even walk into a bar and legally order a beer. Yet he was completely legally able to buy an assault weapon and open fire. If the United States Constitution seriously protects the right of someone below their drinking age to legally buy a gun capable of killing multiple school kids quickly, then the Constitution needs to change. That's what the amendment process is for. Legal frameworks are not set in stone. That's why the US no longer has slavery and now ensures that women have the right to vote. There is precedent for effectual change, including the experience over in Australia. 22 years ago, just weeks after the deadliest and the last fatal mass shooting in Australia's history, the country's then Prime Minister, John Howard, made it clear that Australia wouldn't be like the United States. And he said then, and I quote, I would dread the thought that this country would go down the American path so far as the possession of firearms. The country made sweeping gun control measures after a man killed 35 people with a semi-automatic weapon in a popular tourist area of Port Arthur in Tasmania. Weeks after the April 1996 atrocity, the country and its states began banning rapid-fire guns to clamp down on mass shootings, and then offered to buy the prohibited firearms. Research suggests that it's worked. The University of Sydney, in a 2016 study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, found Australia hasn't experienced a fatal mass shooting one in which five or more people are killed since that 1996 shooting. In the 18 years before that, 1979 to 1996, there were 13 fatal mass shootings in Australia. Now, after the mass shooting in Vegas in October of last year, Australian's foreign minister indicated that it was up to America to get some courage to get the gun issue under control, and Australia would be happy to advise Now, it's important to understand that Australia has always been a very staunch ally of the United States. They went into Iraq when countries like New Zealand, for example, would not. They have stood shoulder to shoulder with America. And that's what a friend does. When you see a friend in trouble, when you see a friend constantly making bad choices, a true friend, a loyal friend steps up and tries to make a difference even though you know it may be a tough task. Those of us who admire what America has contributed to the world need to stand up in firm friendship and say, America, put down your guns. But the main reason I'm devoting some time to this issue on my podcast is to show some solidarity for the survivors at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Because I'm ashamed to admit that when nothing was done about Sandy Hook, I too started to shrug my shoulders whenever another mass shooting story from the US caused my phone to go crazy. I too had started to shrug my shoulders and think nothing could change. I too had started falling into the trap of thinking that this is just how it is in America. As an atheist, I would grit my teeth through what in my view were the meaningless platitudes of the pray for whatever hashtags on social media, sentiments that would come even when the mass shootings were occurring in places of worship. The lives had been taken. What possible benefit could prayers have now? And these kids at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, they've stood up and they've said exactly this. Your thoughts and prayers are not enough. They've shown bravery in the face of many cowardly, self-interested politicians, too scared to do anything because of the powerful gun lobby who have hijacked political discourse in the United States. I believe that when we rise together, when we spend ourselves in a cause that is worthy and just, we can achieve change no matter what the odds. If those kids who are still grieving, still traumatized, Who've had their lives turned upside down and their friends taken from them could take this issue on, then it's the least I can do, that any of us who deplore the gun violence in the United States can do, no matter where we live, to say to those kids, We're right here with you in spirit. Polling indicates that most Americans feel this way, but feel a deep sense of pessimism that anything will ever change. If anything, is worth marching for, organizing for, protesting for. It is this issue. America has to be better than this. My love and profound sympathy to all who lost their loved ones because of this latest shooting. The best way to honor the victims is to ensure something changes this time. This time, surely, it has to be different. Just as thoughts and prayers are not enough, nor is a rant on a podcast. And I have put my money where my thoughts are. I hope you will too. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting, on the web at mosin.org.